Would you open your Bibles to uh, John chapter 2? John chapter 2. It's our second week in this new series on the seven signs within the Gospel of John. And as we begin, I want to I want you to imagine a scene. Try and see if you can discern what this scene is, where it's taking place. Imagine a place where there is unceasing praise, unending celebration, songs that are sung with passion and hands raised high, even lament over that which is wrong. And in this gathering of people, there is a great sense of unity in spirit all taking place within a beautiful sanctuary. What am I describing here? Am I describing the gathering of a local church? Well, these words that I have just shared are the words of one man who was describing not a corporate worship gathering, but describing instead a professional sporting event. One not unlike the one that many of us will watch this evening. What this reveals, this description that I have given, which we know we know well, it reveals something fundamental about our human nature, about the way that God has made us, that we were made to worship. We were made to worship. What will happen in Las Vegas this evening will show that. It will show that people are made to celebrate, to to revere that which is glorious and is excellent. But so often, the object of our worship is not right. It's misguided. We are called to worship God and to worship Him alone. And as we learned in January, we are not only called to worship God and Him alone, but we are called to worship Him in His way. In His way. And what we learn in our passage this morning is not only this fundamental truth that we were made to worship and we were made to worship God alone and in the right way. But also that in Christ there is a new way that has been opened for us that we are called to worship Him. We began last week a series in the seven signs in John and as Jordan set that all up for us so well, he said that signs... They signify something. They they point beyond themselves to something else. And so, in the Gospel of John, these signs that Jesus is doing, often miracles, but not always. On our passage this morning, it is not a miracle. But these signs point to who Jesus is. And they point to what Jesus came to accomplish. We get to the, the end of the Gospel of John and we see what exactly it is that we are supposed to see. In these signs, that Jesus is the Christ, who he is, the Son of God, and that he came to give us life in his name. That's why he came. But also that we are to respond 
to these signs. That we are to respond to who Jesus is, to what it is that He came to do in faith. That we would believe that He is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we would have life in His name. So the first sign last week, Jesus turning the water into wine, it signified who Jesus is and what He came to do. It signified that a new age has dawned. A new age has dawned. There's a very important verse in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 16 in the prologue of John where we're learning about Jesus. And, and we read that from His fullness, that is Jesus' fullness, the Word's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. You may notice if you have a footnote on your translation that a better way to translate that would be to say we have all received a grace in place of a grace. A grace in place of a grace. So there was the grace of the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, but in Christ we have received a grace in place of a grace. We have received a new covenant that comes in Jesus Christ. And all of that is being signified in this, this first sign. And what we see is this new grace, this, this new era, this new covenant is an age of great celebration and of great joy. And additionally, that in this new era, in the new covenant, that the way of purification would be different than it was in the old. That it would be through the blood of Jesus Christ. So, brief review of last week. But it's important to get that as we come to the second sign this week. Much of this continues about a, a grace in place of a grace, the new covenant, the new age, the new era. But there's a shift in the focus, the emphasis. There's specifically a geographical shift. It's easy to note. The, the first sign, the first miracle took place in Cana of Galilee. It's in a rural area, a very small town in the countryside, whereas this sign takes place in the big city at the time of Passover when everybody is gathered together to worship God. But it's not just the setting. It's also the way that we see Jesus. There's a shift in this. Remember last week, to quote Romans, we see something of Jesus' kindness. Whereas this week, we see something of Jesus' sternness. Last week, we see Jesus saving the day at the wedding party. This week, we see Him bringing judgment. He makes a whip. He turns over tables. This is different than what we saw last week. In a sense, Jesus is coming in to the temple complex. And like the professional basketball player Dikembe Matumbo, he's saying, not in my house. That's Stephen's illustration. Not in my house. Not in my Father's house. If you are going to worship God, you have to worship Him in His way. 
He's saying that. But He's also saying that He is the new way and the only way to worship God as we are made to do. So with that in mind, please stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this passage, as you'll look at it on your page, you can see it comes in two parts. There's two paragraphs there. Two parts of the narrative where he clears the temple And then a conversation that ensues with the temple authorities in verses 18 to 22. But I want you to notice something, you may even mark it in your Bibles, that as this narrative progresses in these two parts, at the end of each part, John, the author of this narrative, steps on to the stage of the narrative, so to speak, and offers a soliloquy to help us understand what it is that just took place and what came before. So that first soliloquy is in verse 17. After the clearing of the temple, he says that his disciples remembered that it was written. Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for your house will consume me. But then in the next part, there's this conversation with the Jewish authorities and Jesus gives this weird statement about destroying um, the temple and then raising it up in three days. And John again steps on the scene in verse 21 and says, yeah, but he was speaking about his body, the temple. And later, after he was raised, his disciples, um, they, they remembered these words that he had spoken and they believed the scripture and they believed what it is that he had spoken. So those become very important for us to understand what it is that's going on. But the two part, the two um, moves are clear in the passage. And what we see in the first move is this thing that I started with, that we are called to worship God in God's way. But then when we move into the second part, we start to get light on what's going before we start to see that God's way, there's a new way to worship God in God's way. And that new way 
is in Jesus Christ. So let's walk through this passage together, beginning with the first part, this call to worship God in God's way. This is what we learn in these verses. Jesus is zealous for right worship. Jesus is zealous for right worship. Notice in verse 13, we read that the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, I don't want to speculate, but I just want you to think about something for a moment to try and help get the tone of what's going on. As the people, the Jews, made their way up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is at the highest point. As they ascend for the three major feasts of the year, this being the first, the Feast of the Passover, they would have undoubtedly sung what we call the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent. And one of those Psalms is Psalm 122, which says this, that I was glad when they said, let us go up to the house of the Lord. So there's gladness in singing. There's joy in their singing as they make their way to the house of the Lord. But when Jesus ends up in the temple precincts, He was not glad. Look at verse 14. He found those in the temple who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there And he, verse 15, made a whip of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Not glad. He seems a bit mad to me. The question is, why? But let me back up a a second. Let, Let me put another image in your mind quickly. Who is Jesus who is walking in to the temple courts? John has already told us. There's a verbal clue in his prologue that just makes this whole scene pop. Who is Jesus? He is the Word of God, which John tells us He was with God and He was God. Then we're told in John 1.14 that the Word of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. God became a man. He dwelt among us. Literally, He tabernacled among us. So who's showing up at the temple? None other than the tabernacle of God. Showing up to the temple of God. God in the flesh showing up to His own house. And as God, We know from Exodus 34, for example, that Jesus is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. John is very intent on drawing our attention back to Exodus 34 when he says this Jesus is full of grace and truth. In the original, the same words used in Exodus chapter 34 to speak of God. 
So, why is this Jesus, the Son of God, God Himself, Jesus, meek and mild, why is He so mad? You know, it really doesn't make sense if you understand a bit of the context. The people who had gathered at Jerusalem, they had to bring the right sacrifices. It had to be worship of God in God's way. The right sacrifices. They also had to have the right currency for paying the temple tax, which was a part of it. There was nothing wrong with them buying those sacrifices in Jerusalem. There was nothing wrong with them exchanging Maybe their foreign currency for a currency that would have been acceptable in this process. There's nothing wrong with any of that. So why is Jesus so mad? Well, while there was nothing wrong with those practices in themselves, the big problem is where they were taking place. We are told that all of this was taking place in the temple. That word for temple there is not referring to the building, but the whole complex and is most likely referring to the outer court of the temple or the court of the Gentiles. The place where the Gentiles were to gather to pray and to worship God that was designated for them in that place, they had brought the market to bear. So this evening in Las Vegas, there will be a football game, but with that football game comes food, right? They go together. Um, you can't just show up at the football game. You've got to get your hot dog. You've got to get your popcorn. You've got to get your nachos. Whatever it else that is that you get when you go to a game. And so that's why they have concession stands all around the arena. And even they've got the guy walking up and down the aisles asking if you want something to eat. All of that is right. All of that is good. It's part of what attends watching such a major sporting event. But what if one of those vendors had a food truck that he drove down onto the 50-yard line and that's where the concessions were being sold? I would think that we, we had missed something. We had missed something about what this thing is about. It's about a football game, primarily not about the food. The food attends it, but it is not the main thing. I think that's what's happening here. There's nothing wrong with these elements of their worship, the animals, the currency, but they've essentially driven them on to the field. They have taken center stage. They're distracting from the main event. They have made what was supposed to be a house of worship, a house of prayer, into a house of trade. Why is Jesus zealous for God's house? Because Jesus is zealous for right worship. And right worship takes place in God's house. Right worship is the whole purpose of your life. All of the other things, the thing that you were created for, the thing that you were redeemed for was to worship God and to worship Him in the right way. You can't do that if you're distracted by other things. We just had a whole series on corporate worship and we talked about how important 
the right elements in our worship are. We even talked about the order of the elements. But what if we become so focused on music, for example, and actually forget what this element in worship is for? It's to worship God. Or we get so focused on the order of service that that we forget what the order of service is meant to do. It is meant to facilitate our worship of God. So you can even come to worship with the right ideas in your mind and actually still miss the main thing. You're focused on the food truck and not focused on the worship of God. There are other ways that we can be distracted and that we actually start to lose sight of why we're here in the first place. We're here to see our friends. We're here to make friends. Maybe we're here to maintain connections with other people that may help me in my work. Maybe we're here to maintain our family traditions. There are a lot of reasons why you can start that start creeping in for why you are coming to worship. Those are all a distraction from the main thing. We are called to worship God and to worship God in His way. One of the other things that can get really messed up in our worship is that we come here and we're here to worship God in this place, but then when we're out there, in our life, we compartmentalize our worship. Remember, in the New Covenant, all of life is meant to be worship. All of our life is meant to be a living sacrifice which is holy and acceptable to God. That was one of the problems with the religious leaders. They had all of the rules about worship right, but their hearts were far from God. They were mistreating other people and yet coming to worship God. The prophets denounce this type of thing throughout all of their writings. Jesus denounces this type of thing as well. Our life is meant to be a life of worship. We gather here in a special way for worship, but we don't compartmentalize worship of God. Let's focus on the main thing. Jesus was zealous right worship. But notice that's not all that verse 17 says. Look again at verse 17, which is quoting Psalm 69.9. He says, Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, what that sounds like at a, at a first read, what that sounds like is, I'm so passionate about your house. It consumes me. I'm, I'm ate up with zeal. For your house. But I don't think that's what it means. I think what it means becomes clear as we look at Psalm 69 9. You don't need to turn there, just listen. Both lines of this verse will be familiar for most of you because we just covered them in Romans 15. He says, For zeal for your house has consumed me. So that's line one of the poetic line. Zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Which we know from Romans 15 is a reference to the death of Christ, to His crucifixion. And interestingly, 
The Gospel of John quotes Psalm 69 two more times. And both of them are references to His death. More in number are the hairs of my head than those who hate me without cause, Jesus says in chapter 15. Or, as he says, as as John says, when Jesus is on the cross, they gave me poison for food. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. So how is Psalm 69 being used in this passage? Zeal for your house. Zeal for worship. It leads to opposition from the religious leaders that ends up leading to His death. Zeal will consume me. My zeal will end up being my end. This opposition that Jesus, I mean that John is referring to in verse 17, it will escalate all the way to the cross. But it begins in verse 18. This is the first indication in Jesus' life of the opposition of the Jewish authority. So we've seen that we are to worship God in the right way. Now we see that the right way involves a new way. Here's the second point. Jesus is the new temple and He's the only way. So He's the new way, but He's also the only way to worship God. In verse 18, the Jewish authorities ask him a question. What sign do you show us for doing these things? They basically want to know his credentials. How are you going to come into our house and start overturning tables? I mean, who who gave you the authority to do that? Are you management? We're management. One more Super Bowl illustration, and then I'll be done. The Passover is a festival. It's a party. We just saw Jesus as the life of the party in the previous sign. Now He's crashing the party. So imagine at your Super Bowl party this afternoon, some West Sider comes over to your house and crashes your party. He dumps out your chips and your dips. He takes your air fryer that is full of chicken wings that have yet to be dipped in the sauce and He pitches them out on the back porch. He pulls down your Go Chiefs banner and then right before that surprise appearance of somebody at halftime, He shuts off the TV. Maybe not on that last part about the halftime show, but the other stuff, I would bet that you would be indignant. Who do you think that you are? Would be the question in your mind and maybe even with your words. That's what's going on here. They are saying, who do you think that you are? So they ask Him for a sign to validate His authority. But this is what I want you to get. They fail to see that He's already given them the sign. All of that stuff in the outer court was the sign. Jesus is acting like an Old Testament prophet here who not only speaks a prophetic word, but does prophetic actions. 
symbolic actions or sign acts, if you like. I've said this before, but to make my point, you have a number of examples. Isaiah, for one. Three years, he walks around naked. It's a symbolic act. It's a sign. What does it signify? It signifies that the Assyrians are going to come and take Egypt and Cush and haul them off into exile in the buck. Ezekiel did something similar. He was called by God to use a brick to build like a model siege work. It was a symbolic act, a sign to show the coming Babylonian siege on Jerusalem. So Jesus is not only in overturning the tables, driving out the oxen, showing that we need to have a zeal for right worship of God, He is also indicating that He is the new way to worship God. So, they asked for a sign, but He's already given it. So instead of giving them another one, He gives them a cryptic saying in verse 19 that sheds light on all that He was symbolizing in the previous verses. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jewish authorities find this ludicrous. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, they say. And would you raise it up in three days? It's, it's almost as if, notice the narrative stops here. It's almost as if they've trumped Him. He doesn't have an answer for their question. And yet, we learn as John steps onto the stage in verse 21, that he wasn't speaking of Herod's temple at all. He was speaking about the temple of his body. And nobody got it at this point, And they wouldn't get it for some time to come. But as verse 22 tells us, when Jesus was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered what He said. They believed the Scripture and the Word that, they had, that He had spoken. So what was it? What was it that they came to understand about what was being symbolized in the clearing, the cleansing of the temple. I think it is simply this, that the old way is being removed and is being replaced with a new way. The old covenant altogether is being removed. The new covenant is the replacement of that but specifically as it relates to the temple which was central in Old Covenant worship. This new temple will be the new place where the people of God will meet with God, the new way in which the people of God will do the very thing for which Jesus came, which is to worship God, to know God, to live for God. So, Jesus is the new temple. One of Lucas's middle school kids this last week, they were trying to say, what's, what's going on in this passage? And he asked the question, what do you think it's about? And they said, well, I think it's something to do with the temple. Um, good instincts. Good instincts. Yes, it's something to do with the temple. But what does it have to do with the temple? The temple is not simply the building. 
When Jesus is indicating that He's the new temple, He's saying, I am replacing the whole thing. All that is bound up with old covenant temple worship, I am replacing all of that. What was one of the main things at temple worship? Sacrifices. Jesus drove out those sheep and oxen. He was not only showing His disdain for wrong worship. He was also saying that this whole system is about to be driven away. The people will still need a sacrifice to pay for their sins, but that will no longer be through sheep and oxen. It will now be through Jesus' blood. As John the Baptist said in chapter 129, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which is a reference to the Passover Lamb. So they are here in Jerusalem at the temple on Passover and Jesus is saying this whole thing is going away. But I am bringing something new. But not only something new. Something that is much, much better. But He's not only the new sacrifice. He is also the new priest. No longer a priest who has to make sacrifices not only for the sins of His people, but also for His own sins. Jesus will be the perfect mediator between God and man and the permanent mediator between God and man. But also a new location. Worship will no longer be localized in Jerusalem at the temple, but it will be in localized in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This whole section in John, chapters 2 to 4, we get, we get light thrown on this as we turn to chapter 4 where Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman. In verses 21 to 23, He says to her, Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming, He goes on to say, and is now here when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Friends, God is seeking worshipers. That's why you were made. To worship God. And God is seeking worshipers. But His worshipers will no longer be restricted to Jerusalem. That's the old way. It will now be in the Spirit. Anywhere where the church is gathered. Anywhere where the people of God go, they can worship God. But also, it will be in truth. No longer in the temple system, in the sacrificial system, in the priestly system. No longer in any of that. It will be in Jesus who is the truth. He is the way. He is the life. We worship God in God's way, but God's way, the only way to worship God is through Jesus Christ. The big question this morning is about worship. Who are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? Are you worshiping the one true God? Or are you holding on 
to something else. That was the issue with the religious leaders. They were holding on to this old way of worshiping God, which all along was meant to point to the new way. They should have known that. They should have been anticipating that. But they were so gripped by the old way that they were blind to see that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of that. That He offered a new and better way. And so, they put Him to death. Turn, if you will, to John 11, verse 47. I want to I show you this. It's interesting. We're at the beginning of the section of the signs in John 2. John 11, these verses we're going to read, they come after all seven signs have happened. Jesus is building momentum. And they ask themselves in verse 47, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then guess what? The Romans will come and they will take away both our place, which I think is referring to this temple system that they had authority over, as well as our nation. Their very identity as a nation was wrapped up in all that was going on in the temple system and in all of the feasts. And they're afraid that if, if people believe in Jesus and these signs that He's doing, Rome is, is they're going to be upset by all of this and they're going to come in and they're going to take this all away from us. What do we do? Caiaphas in verse 50 tells them what they are to do. He says, do you not understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish? Let's kill him. One man to save the nation. Little did he know that he spoke far better than he knew. One man, not to save a nation, but one man to save a people for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. They were blinded by their attachment to the old. They couldn't see that in Christ a grace in place of a grace had come. So they killed Him. And ironically, the death of Christ ushered in the new covenant. So the thing that they were trying to hold on to, the old, was ironically ushered in through putting Jesus to death. Through His blood, a new covenant has come. And ironically, through His death, He established His authority. They're asking Him, what are your credentials? Where do you get the right to dictate the way we do things in worship? Through His death and His subsequent resurrection, He showed them, I've got all authority in heaven and on earth. I can call the shots. But they didn't see it. They wouldn't see it. They weren't willing to see it. Because Jesus was a threat to all they held dear to. So let me ask a question of you as we close. What are you holding on to? 
Jesus died for your sins. He is raised from the dead. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And He wants you to worship Him, to worship the one true God. Are you threatened by that? Do you want to hold on to your autonomy, to your way of life? Are you afraid that Jesus will mess your life up? Well, in a sense, He will disrupt your life. But friends, the one who has all authority, the one that turns over tables and says, I will dictate how God is worshipped. That God, that Savior, that Jesus, He is the new temple and from Him flow streams of living water. He wants to give you life. Life to the fullest. Life abundantly. Eternal life where you will come to know personally God. To worship Him. To adore Him. To live your life for Him. There is nothing more marvelous, nothing more blessed than that. Yes, Jesus is the ruler over all, but from His rule come abundant blessings. So what are you holding on to? It will not give life to you. Only Jesus can. Jesus comes in and says, not in my house. There will be no false worship. And friends, that message continues. Those who do not worship God and do not worship Him in the way that He has laid out, they will face the judgment of the coming Jesus. But praise be to God that this Jesus has made a way. He has made a way that we can come in to God's house to know God and to fulfill the purpose for which we were created which is to worship Him. Would you come to Him today? Let's pray. Father in Heaven, what humility that You would, that Your Son would leave Heaven Come to us on earth. Tabernacle among us. And then die for us and be raised. And even now is preparing a place for us in Your house. What grace we have in Him. I pray that You would remove blinders from our eyes that You would clean house. That You would remove the things that entangle us. That keep us from seeing Him. That keep us from worshiping You by Your Holy Spirit. Work in this church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.